Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Ashley, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm so happy to be here. So I think a good place to start would probably be to give the audience a bit of your background so they have some context for the discussion we're going to have. Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I went on to Stanford University and I actually ran track and I majored in political science there and really fell in love with storytelling and journalism and law and ethics. And then I went on to a Harvard Law School and I've been practicing law in LA, mostly white collar investigations for about Mm -hmm. four years now. And I'm really passionate about storytelling and also just human centered work. So in addition to the work I've been doing in the legal space, I've been on a lot of leadership committees within my firm. And we're seeing this change and this shift in the pan with regard to the pandemic on how we want to work as professionals. And so I've been at the center of a lot of those conversations. How do we promote more well-being for high achieving people, especially in these really demanding jobs? And I'm seeing it in the consulting space. I mean, that's my banking space. And so I've had a lot of fun with that. And I also do a lot of that work on a podcast. So I'm also a creator and I work on a podcast and we have these conversations and we yes. share our stories as professionals. So you, you're currently a lawyer studying white collar investigations. What is that? Absolutely. So it's actually quite interesting. It's a little bit of what you might see on TV, yeah. uh, maybe a little less glamorous. I'll say <laughs> that. But essentially, it I feel like a bit of a Nancy Drew when it comes to investigating a particular issue for a company. So it can come up in a few different ways. One way is a whistleblower complaint. The government can get some type of inside information. And so they'll send a subpoena to a specific company and then a company hires outside counsel. So uh, like me Mm -hmm. to come in and investigate the issue. So that means that we go in and we look at the documents we interview relevant parties, we put together the facts and we try to figure out what happened here. And then we look at the relevant law and we apply it to the facts and we advise the company. And we also act as an intermediary with the government entity that might be investigating the company. So that's one way it comes up. Sometimes there's no government entity involved at all and there just might be an employer employee complaint as an example. And so the company wants to dig into what this employee is saying and figure out what's going on. And so they'll hire us to do essentially an investigation there and perhaps even do a risk assessment. You know, let's figure out what they're saying. Is this true? Is there any validity here? And how can we advise the company to move forward, to move forward in an ethical manner? It sounds very exciting, to be honest. I mean, I always thought The Good Wife was a work of fiction, but apparently that's what <laughs> lawyers do. You go out and yeah. investigate things. It sounds exciting. It sounds like you're not very popular when you go into these companies. 
It is. It is a challenging practice group to get into. I will say I had to be very proactive uh, to get into the practice group. When I first got to my firm, I remember emailing, I came in as a lateral attorney. Mm -hmm. And so I emailed, I believe 12 partners, just letting them know this is the kind of work that I was really interested in doing. I had a friend who was already at the firm and really enjoyed that work. And I know that it's hard to come by. So it was like, let me get my name out there and see what I can do. And with time and a little bit of patience and hard work, I actually am now in a position where white collar attorneys call me to get staffed on their cases. That's pretty interesting. So your goal here is to build your law career. That's how you see things progressing? Yeah, you know, I am still figuring it out. I talk a lot about this uh, on my podcast, actually, No Straight Path, because I'm still, I'm not sure. Right now, I am certainly enjoying it, but I'm also really pulled into this human-centered kind of well-being work that I'm doing at my firm alongside with the podcast. So I'm actually at, I don't really know, at like a midpoint in my career, not a midlife crisis, I would say, but... (laughs) certainly a point where I'm interrogating my thinking about my career, but right now I'm really enjoying the investigatory work and I'm, yeah. So what made you start doing thinking and being so proactive around the wellness space? What was the trigger for that? It was what I was seeing in the industry, just talking to friends and colleagues and family. So I'm a people person. I'm the person at the firm, you know, I will know not only what cases you're working on, but I will know if you're going through personal problems or you're married to, you know, if you have kids, all the things I will be that person. And so I started to have these conversations and realize that people were really struggling with well-being, especially people in these spaces, because we're so ambitious, we're very goal oriented. And so a lot of your time is consumed by your work. And, you know, it's a client service industry in big law firms. And so it's, it really does become that. And so you have to really be proactive about carving out time. And I just felt like we all work so hard to get to these spaces that I think it's important that our well being is prioritized. And it really heightened during, during the pandemic. And the way that I was able to get really involved with it from an administrative perspective is that I was appointed to a few leadership committees. And so I took on the well-being initiative. And so I thought, you know, not only do we need to talk to attorneys about health and, you know, working out and eating right and carving out time for meditation, friends, family, spirituality, we also need to create structural and systemic changes to help support attorneys in this feat. Because there's only so much you can do as an individual if there are demands on your time. And so the firm and other firms in general have been brainstorming ways to help protect the time and the well-being of attorneys. And I think it's incredible. We're talking about empathy at work, about well-being. These are things we did not talk about pre-pandemic. I'm pretty excited about what we're doing in this space. It sounds very interesting. My background was at the major strategy firms, and I was a senior partner there. Now, when I was around, nobody talked about wellness. It was a badge of honor to eat bad food, 
wake <laughs> up early, sleep late, send emails at 3 a.m., be available on a weekend, travel on short notice. And I obviously keep in touch with colleagues in the firms. And elite law, I think, is pretty similar to elite management consulting. But my observation is that a lot of it is lip service. So firms say these things because it's good marketing material. And they do make some changes. But from what I have seen, the consultants who are willing to live the old model or sort of a rough and tough life are still the ones who get put onto the most important engagements at the firm. So all of these things are said, but if I actually track, and we, we do track the careers of consultants, the ones who live in the old way are still the ones getting the best roles, fastest promotions, becoming equity partner, and so on. So my question to you is, and, and it's not a, a gotcha kind of question, is that how sincere are companies about this from what you have seen? And I'm not referring to just your firm, I mean, in general. Right. No, I think that's a great question. I agree. And that is something we're really working on. Because to a certain extent, it has to be lip service because of the demand when it comes to client services, mm-hmm. right? And so I think there's, it's been challenging. So, you know, firms are made up of people, right? Yes. And so we need to get to the heart. <laughs> you, need, you need to talk to their hearts yeah. and, talk, and talk about, that's why I love storytelling, to really have them understand, you know, if we act collectively, then there is a way to make change. I think change will be slow, right? I'm an optimist. So I probably sounded a bit more optimistic than uh, it's not reflective of the timeline, yes. but it, it, you know, especially this, these specific industries were in there just a little bit more traditional. And so I do think a few things need to happen. I think that people in leadership sincerely want this to happen, but they are balancing a lot of business incentives and constraints. Yes. And the one business incentive that we do have is we are the workforce. We are the people. So if we can act collectively and we start to put out these boundaries and everyone works together to agree that this is what we're going to do as millennial and I think Gen Z is now entering the workforce, entering these spaces, I think we can create change. It's really going to come from the actual employees, and that's when the employers will change. I think you're right, because it's, it's like a capitalist model, right? So even yes. when you have client services and you say, I want to put boundaries on, I'm not going to talk to my client for the whole weekend, you know, I'm not going to yeah. respond to them, they're going to go to someone else, yes. right? So we're, we're working within this framework. But if firms, consults, consulting firms, law firms, you know, investment banking firms, if they don't have employees <laughs> to do the work, then they're not going to be able to move forward. And so that's why there you even see them bending now with remote work. So we know that they can change. At first, you know, you had to come into the office. Like FaceTime was so important. Yeah. I've been able to build a really great career and not come into the office a lot. And so I think that it's going to take some time, but it really is going to come from the people because I agree with you. A lot of it is lip service but there are people who care, they just have constraints. And if you go to your client and you say, this is how it has to be because this is what the whole workforce, you're not gonna have any consultants on your case, you're not gonna have any attorneys on your case, then that's when we see this, the change. Yes, I mean, just well said, you made some very, very good points there. I think it's also a function of competition 
because I mean, I've seen this happen many times in my career whereby some industries like the automotive industry in America, for example, became very successful, started taking good care of their employees. And, you know, at one stage working at GM and Ford and so on was a major badge of honor, a wonderful careers, some of the best careers you could have had. And when German competition arrived, Japanese competition, now Chinese competition arrived, those companies have no choice but to force their employees to work harder and faster to respond to competition. So as you say, it's not always within the control of a firm, but what role do you see customers playing? I mean, a client's playing the role of saying, you know what, we understand that we don't want the lawyers to be overworked, or do you still see that despite what companies are saying, customers are still as demanding? Yeah, so that's a great question. It really depends on the industry. I will say that. I We are still, we have clients, all of us, I feel like this audience, they're pretty man because of what they're paying us. So understandably, you need to be on call. You need to be available. This is what they're paying you per hour to do yes. this work. And so that's the challenge. And that's where it, you really have to start to try to like have these conversations to change the culture and to even build actual relationships with the clients. Once you start to really get to know your clients, I know some of my clients, I know, as I said before, I'll know, you know their kids when they have a, yeah. a birthday party, they'll let me know I'm out of office. I'm going to my daughter's graduation. When you can have that back and forth and have that actual personal relationship, then you do start to see more flexibility and them understanding your schedule and understanding how to move forward in a productive manner. So I do think number one, it, it really comes down to relationship. Yeah. And number two, it's, it's a culture thing. It's all slow, but I'm, I'm so optimistic because when you think about time, right. When we think about how cultures have changed, if you look at it in like maybe 20 year increments, you're going to see progress. Now, a couple of years, probably not. And it might take even longer than that. But even as when you, you are a client, so I am someone now who has a number of different things going on. And so with my podcast and my editing team, I noticed, I was like, wow, I'm being a little demanding. Like, let me check in yeah. <laughs> and see, can they actually get this deadline? Let me see if I can, because they were making a, there's a point where there was probably some, there were some mistakes being made. And I said, you know, what can I do to help support you? What's going on? And they explained, oh, we're low staff right now. This happened, X, Y, Z happened. I said, okay, let's push this deadline. And so it took me checking in to figure out, okay, what's going on here? This is not the work product we usually do. You, this is not the work product you usually provide. So yeah. perhaps I can be a more understanding client and human because ultimately that's what we all are. And so that's also something we have to change is really trying to create a society where we're human first. And I know it's so hard with these capitalist and con competition constraints, but I certainly think it's possible. Yes, I like that. That's well said. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. If you look at the hawk of human history, we're obviously living in the best time ever. I mean, objectively speaking, you know, mortality rates and all those measures of success, this is the best time ever. So why is it so many people are unhappy? You speak to everyone today and they're unhappy about something 
mm. whether it's their work, whether it's, in, I mean, inflation's a big one, we can't diminish those things. But, but my question is, what's driving the discomfort if this is the best time? And that's obviously a very subjective statement, but relatively speaking. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And I think it's so interesting because sometimes when you talk to people from even perhaps not as privileged positions, but lower socioeconomic statuses, and they'll be happy. Like my grandparents were immigrants from Guyana and came here without any money. And they were pretty happy because I mm -hmm. think there was a focus on family and the inner work and spirituality. I think our society now, we've lost touch with just some of the simple things in life yes. because our lives are so busy and we are trying to achieve so much, which is wonderful. But I think that the moments, those really small moments are the things that make me happy. And they never appear on my Instagram or my Facebook yeah. or my LinkedIn highlights. There's those moments where you just have quiet time, whether it's 10 minutes to think, think to yourself, reading for pleasure, I think is something I think someone, I just started this before I would just read to learn and read for my job. But now I just yeah. read really fun books for pleasure. Having hobbies, I think is so important. And watching a TV show, I try to do at least one TV show a week with my husband, because he's also he's a trial attorney. So he's always working yeah. uh, trial. And so you know, building in those small moment, moments, I think is really important because people are unhappy for a number of reasons. And I think it's all these external things. But if we start to have this inward peace, I think that's when you can really start to reach your full potential and your happiness. So what you're saying, if I'm going to paraphrase you here for the audience so that they can use some of the insights you're generating is that you need to have a life of appreciation and a sense of purpose. Is that a good way of saying it? Thank you. Yes. And it makes sense because, I mean, we both work with very talented people, but I've seen people that actually believe that if they earn more money, they'll be more happy. But I'm thinking if you earn more money, you'll just have more, more expensive ways to be sad rather than be happy because you can be happy with less. It's not as if more money is going to fix things or even a promotion is going to fix things. Because if you're working hard and you don't have a connection with someone in the world and you don't have those moments to reflect, more money, more promotions doesn't fill the void, right? Oh, 100%. I've seen this so many times. I've seen this so many times. I think, and you also hit on something. I think you mentioned the word relationship. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was that Harvard study. There's that study that I'm not quite sure the time period, but when it comes to a life well-lived, it's always comes down to relationships. And I think that our society now, there's a lot more loneliness, even though we might be connected by technology, those really deep friendships and relationships are the things that really sustain you and life. And we've kind of lost that. Yes. And building on that, it's not just a relationship. It's a connection. You can have a lot of friends. You can be surrounded by a lot of people. But if you have a connection to no one, you are going to be lonely. Right. And I've seen that with many, many colleagues of mine who were very talented at their roles. You know, they were very successful partners and so on. But then they reach a point in their life where they're completely alone. They have a connection to nobody. They're in relationships, but they don't have a connection. And I think people tend to forget, I would say it's almost a disease loneliness. 
we dismiss it as something you don't really talk about, but COVID has shown us the value of connections and hopefully people will treat relationships better. They'll take better care of their relationships. But unfortunately, we assume that, but you do see people going back to their old behaviors pretty quickly as the fear of COVID decides and so on. So how do you think people build this life of meaning? What can they do? That's a good question. I would say a few things. I think number one, figure out your community, figure out the people who are in your corner and pour into those relationships, right? Because as you said, a connection is so important, but you have to spend time to build that connection. If you're always neglecting it and you think it's always going to be there, it's not going to be there. So figure out the relationships that you really want to pour into and carve out time for that. I think that's extremely important. And I think another thing is figure out what you love doing without a dollar sign attached to it. Yes. What do you love to do for free in your spare time? I remember actually, it was so interesting. I was in an Uber and usually the Uber driver will ask me, How, how's your day? What yeah. do you do for a living? And this Uber driver asked me, what do you do for fun? And I literally could not answer. You couldn't. I could. I was like, "Oh my god, I like do." That's your work. midlife crisis, right there, Ashley. <laughs> yes. I said, "All I do is work." This is about two years ago, but it was a wake-up call for me. I was like, "Wait, I need to figure out what I love doing." And then that's when I was able to enter a space where I started to read for fun. I started to blog. I started to write and journal, and I just found a lot of peace through that. So I think that's really important. Yes, but it's interesting the way you tell the story, because if you had someone had asked you that question four years ago, you would have said it with a sense of pride. Mm. And you almost have had to have gone through life's experiences first to realize that not having any fun in your life is bad for you. Because I actually know this for a fact, even today, someone asked me the other day, you know, where do I go on vacation? And I had to tell them I've actually never been on vacation because I've been to 54 countries or so, but I've always been there for work. And when I was younger, I would say that with a lot of pride. But when you think about it now, you can't have a balanced life and you can't be the best person you can be unless you have time to invest in yourself. And that's the point I want to make here. A lot of times when we look at reading and spending time with, for example, you said spending time with your husband, watching one show a week, hopefully it'll bump up to two soon. Yes. <laughs> Those are all investments you're making in yourself. You're giving yourself things that's a reward and you grow when you rest. But in society today, we don't talk about investing in ourselves unless it's something like getting, a, in your case, a Stanford and a Harvard degree or going for some course. But investing in yourself is taking care of yourself. And how do you encourage people to take care of themselves? What are some of the things that you tell people in your podcast, in work, and so on? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think that the thing that people are really struggling with right now is how to prioritize their time and to take care of themselves. And I think there's this big self-care movement. It's like, you know, have your green juice and get your massage. You know, and that's great. I love those. Those are shiny, fancy things. Um, But I, what I think is really important is if you're able to have 
a routine or you move through life with peace. And it's very challenging to do that in our careers, but I think that it's possible. And one thing I like to do is this morning routine. So I just like to get up, I have my cup of coffee, I sit on my balcony, I say a prayer, and I look at my Maya Angelou uh, quotes. I look at a quote every day. (laughs) And that kind of, that centers me and puts me in the right place. I also spend time with my family. My grandmother is 95. And so I like to go and visit her weekly and have a good conversation with a woman who has lived so much life and tell her all about my hopes and dreams. And she just encourages me and tells me about her life stories, which has been really great. So I think if you have, for me, family has been big. I didn't mention this, but we talked about the change for me not only occurred during the pandemic when it came to you know how much I worked, but also with the loss of my mom. So I, my mom passed away from cancer last year And so I took time, you know, and I had a great relationship with her. So great. Thankfully, I spent a lot of time with her uh, because she was just always here cleaning my apartment, even though I was working crazy hours. She was just very involved, thankfully. But it also made me think back and say, wait, I'm not spending enough time with the people I love. And so that's why I'm making these weekly visits with my grandmother and I do my father-daughter dance practice with my father. We are yeah. finally having our wedding. We had a pandemic wedding. And so I remember I almost canceled it last week because I was just so tired and stressed with work. And so I told my dad, 30 minutes, I told him, he came for 30 minutes. And the amount of laughter that left my body was worth it because my dad's yeah. not a good dancer. I <laughs> uh, don't say that. He's the best dancer you can be. <laughs> you're right. You're right. He's trying. But it's it was so it's so much fun. You know, play. I think that's something we lose as adults. I think when people have children, I've noticed this, they really started to play more and play games. And just yeah. I so I think that all of that is really important to build that into your schedule it's kind of like you do a calendar invite. I know it sounds crazy, but I put calendar. No, I actually do that as well. Oh, you do. Okay. (laughs) Cause I was like, I build in my joy. I build and I I schedule it in to my calendar. Like I do with my work assignments. And I did not do that before. And it's certainly been life-changing. Well, if I may, and if I'm not stepping out of any boundaries here, one thing that you may want to consider doing with your grandmother and your father is actually interviewing them and recording that yeah you know what no I love that suggestion I've actually done it I interviewed my grandmother yes about a year ago it was a great project and my dad actually and all my uncles appeared on a special father's day episode of my podcast and they love it they think they're famous now it's hilarious (laughs) no but it's a very important thing because I remember I was working with a client very accomplished lady like yourself And because she was trying to get her green card in America, she couldn't go back to see her mom when her mom died. But her grandmother was still alive. When she got a green card and she could leave the United States, her grandmother became sick. And I said, one of the things that could help you heal is to interview your grandmother, find out about her life, really talk and find out about her life, because there are things she's not told you yet, because she thinks you're not ready to hear it. But when you do that, you will always have that memory and just stays and it was a very healing thing for her and it really helped her process things because there were things that grandmother never told her 
And when she learned those things, she understood why her family is the way it is. So obviously I'm not recommending everyone does this, but it's interesting how we speak to someone our whole lives. We know them our entire adult life, but there are stories about them that they've never told us. That's so true. Definitely. Certainly have seen another part inside of my grandmother, which has been really amazing seeing parts of myself in her that I didn't know. So I, I agree. Yeah. And it's interesting because oftentimes we live our life with a story we've told ourselves about how we've grown up, who we are, and what our future is. And that story is based on what our family has largely told us and trained us. And it's based on our interpretation of what we've been told and the meaning we've given to what's happened in our lives. But oftentimes we never go back and ask our family members, you know, why is our family like this? Why am I this way? Why did we move here? And when you actually do it, it's not the answers you expect, which then changes the way you value things. Like, for example, when I spoke to my parents, you know, why they made these decisions, and they would tell me, well, there's no choice. They couldn't actually go to university. It was not a possibility for them. And then it really makes you appreciate the fact that we can go to university. It's like a small thing, right? <laughs> but yeah, it changes yeah. your perspective. And, and what I'm hoping people will get out of this is that sometimes you've got to go back and think about the stories you've been telling yourself and understand why those are the stories of your life. Because if, if you change your story, you can change your life. But oftentimes you don't do something as simple as that. I love that. I completely agree. So let's talk a little bit about you and your career and so on. Something that I'm very sensitive to is that you know, we talk about equality and everyone has equal opportunities and so on, but we know that's not really the case. You obviously face certain challenges because you're a female and a female of color as well. Now, from what I've seen during COVID, unless you were part of the right network before you went into lockdown, it was very hard to break into that. And we've got female clients, female clients of color and so on. So how do you cope with that? I mean, you obviously face certain hurdles. Sometimes people don't want to talk about it, but how do you cope with those things? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. So I did, I've always been a black woman in predominantly uh, white spaces. I've always mm -hmm. had to navigate it. And so I do a few things. When I first got to my firm, about over 200 attorneys at that firm in that specific office, and I was the only black associate. And so that can feel pretty lonely initially. And you have to figure out, okay, who can I talk to, to figure out how I'm going to navigate this new space. And so what I did is fortunately, a lot of firms, they do have these affinity groups. So I reached out to a few people, but I also had to find community within the firm. So I actually called other black women associates cross office. So I called yeah. people in San Francisco, in New York, in DC, and we all came together and we created it sounds so simple, but it was life-changing, a group text where we could actually really support one another. Because I noticed at Stanford and at Harvard, being within the, there's a Black Law Students Association, and that was very helpful. Just having that community where people understand your experiences, I think that really helps center you and helps yeah. you realize and know you know that you belong but there are things that happen in your career that other people just won't understand because they don't have your lived experience 
And if you can have someone in your corner who understands that, it goes a really long way. So there are a number of, there's a few of us, not a number, but a few Black women at my firm and we really lean on each other and we're literally all best friends, which is incredible. And I'm not saying this always happens, but I do think number one, finding community within whatever space you're in is really important. And that can be for whatever group you can be because you're a woman or if you're a parent, but for me specifically as a black woman, that's what I did. And I think that's very helpful. The other thing I think that's helpful is finding a mentor and a sponsor. So your mentor is the person that you can have those really candid conversations with and talk to them about your career and how you're navigating this specific space. And they're able to provide their knowledge and expertise to help you navigate that issue. Person does not have to look like you or have the same descriptive representation, but they do need to be someone that you're comfortable with so that you can have those honest conversations. And then the second person you need to have is as far as just your career career and propelling within a specific direction is a sponsor. And that's someone who has power within your industry, within your firm, and they're able to help advocate for you when it comes to specific work. For me, it's specific cases I wanted to get on. That was very helpful. So I think the combination of having a mentor, a sponsor, and a community of women who really understood my experience has actually really helped me in this space. It's been a lot better than I thought it would be. And I really do feel like I'm at home now within my firm. It just took some time. I actually like this answer a lot. And I'll tell you why I like this answer, because we have a lot of clients all over the world dealing with some kind of institutional and structural barrier that they face as a result of legacy issues. And I feel that the responses fall into one of two categories. The first category, which is very unique, I think, in the one you're in, and I like it the most, and I'll tell you why, is that if you look at your response, you've shown agency over your career. You've decided what you need to do to feel comfortable and progress in your career. You've reached out to the people you need support for, and you're making your way in your career. But the other response I've seen, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think that it doesn't work as well is whereby I've seen some clients sit back and say, well, there's something wrong at the company. The company needs to fix it and clear a path for me. But the challenge with that is sometimes companies can't know enough of your challenges because there's nobody like you in a senior position. So you have to take the responsibility of telling them what you need. And that's what you seem to be doing. So I like that strategy a lot. Thank you. Yeah. And I completely understand that latter perspective as well. And I think that they can coexist, right? You can definitely have take the agency, you know, go out and tell them what you need. Cause I certainly have been doing that as well. So I'll provide an example. I noticed that diverse associates, there's just a huge burden on us to do the recruiting and to do the pitches, right? There's just not that many diverse associates. And so we have to go out and do this work, which is important work. We want to have more diverse associates at the firm. And so I understand that they want to see someone who looks like them to, you know, pull them in to know that they'll have that support. It was very important to me, but we also have our casework and we have our lives. And so we're just stretched so, so thin. And 
this kind of work wasn't really being recognized by the firm or other firms. It's just, you know, you get like at the end of your review, thank you for all your diversity and inclusion work. We appreciate you. Or you, you get like yeah. a, a little <laughs> high know. five at a meeting. Or a mug, a mug. Yeah, a mug, yes, exactly. A little bit of swag, right? Yeah. And what we realize, and this is cross firms right now. So a lot of firms have started implementing this is that our value in big law is tied to the billable hour. And so in order to show that you really care about diversity and inclusion, let's tie the billable hour to diversity and inclusion work. And so I did a lot of advocacy for this specific policy where a capped number of hours spent on this diversity and inclusion work would go towards your billable hours. And so my firm and a number of, fir of firms have approved this. And that's really helped with showing people that we care about this initiative and we're not just saying that we are, we're actually yes. putting the you know, money there. And the mark when you know that we've reached success is when we don't talk about diversity and inclusion anymore. It's nothing we celebrate because it's already there. Right. And we don't need to have a special committee managing it because it is just the way it is. You know, you don't need a special yeah. committee looking at this. And I used to work a lot in Singapore and so on. And one thing that surprised me when I worked in Singapore is how diverse those teams are. Because Singapore is a mix of Indians and Chinese and there's many different nationalities there. But when you sit in a meeting and you talk to people, they don't talk about diversity and inclusion because there is diversity and inclusion. There's no special committee. I mean, I'm sure some companies in Singapore may have these committees, but it seems like there are models for doing this. We just have to do them. It's not a difficult yeah. thing to fix. This is not like trying to figure out how to prevent climate change. You know, it's not that complicated. <laughs> it's a pretty simple thing. If you want diversity and inclusion, you hire for diversity and inclusion and you make it part of the economic model of your company. Right. Like what you right. said, you got to tie it to billable hours. And I always tell people that if you want to know what a company is truly like, don't read their mission statement. Don't ask employees how they feel. Look at the remuneration structure. Right. If you see how people are remunerated, that's the culture of the company. I love that. That's so true. So true. It's, it's these structural things, these systemic things, not just the words that we see on the website. Yeah, exactly. The words on the website mean nothing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was uh, working with a, what was the title of this person? I think it was chief technology officer, one of the largest logistics companies in Asia and a very forward looking company in terms of the way they treat employees. And I was very impressed with the way they give employees time off. They have counselors and therapists on call. And I have spoken to some of his team members who are very proud of how forward-looking the company is. But when you look at the way they treat their contractors, lawyers, bankers, and consultants, the courtesy and the focus on wellness doesn't seem to extend past their own employees. So it makes you think, how focused are they on wellness if they can turn it on and off as needed? Yeah. And the point I wanna make is that, you know, when you talk about wellness, having a sense of purpose, living a life with a sense of completeness if you're not willing to grant that to others then you are not also living that life it's one thing to say i you know get up in the morning and i do these things i also have a ritual in the morning by the way 
But if I'm not granting that to someone else, then I don't think I fully have embraced this whole wellness movement. Exactly. I completely agree. It's just, it's like being a kind person. If you're only kind to certain people, then are you really that kind? Exactly. <laughs> yes, it's exactly my point. Because if you can switch it off at any time, that means it's not really your personality. It's a skill you have that you're using for gain as opposed to this is who you are as a person. Yeah, yeah. Speaking to the choir. <laughs> Speaking to the choir. So do you have any words of advice for our clients as they listen to all this interesting insights you have? What can they do on Monday morning to have a life of purpose, to have connections? You know, so for example, if someone's listening to this and saying, okay, I like what Ashley and Michael are saying, but they want to know what do I do on Monday? How do I change my life? What is the first step I can make in this direction, if not the full journey? Yeah, I think the first step, it always for me just comes back to that connection and those relationships is do a check-in. Like, do you feel close to the people in your life? Like you said that before, you said it's not just having relationships, it's having connection. If you're mm -hmm. not feeling close to those people that you love the most, then put a plan in place. Have a date night with your spouse, take your kids on a vacation, put the time in so that you can pour into the relationships that matter the most. Yeah, that's such a simple thing that people don't do. Because when you talk about wellness, people always tell me, well, they're journaling, they're drinking green juice, they're going for <laughs> yoga and meditation. And the reason I think you should do those things, but I don't think they help many people is because they treat it as therapy after they've introduced stress and chaos into their life. So they, they eat badly and then they have a green juice to compensate for eating badly, rather than saying, okay, how do I reduce the stress in my life? How do I have a healthy diet? So I don't treat green juice as some kind of medicine to fix the damage I'm causing. And it's almost yeah. a preventative view of your body, as opposed to trying to do all these things to fix it, because your body heals naturally if you just take care of it. And what you mentioned is a very, very simple thing, because it's just things everyone can do. It's not as if you have to go read a book or something. You can practice this one minute after listening to this episode, right? Right. And one other thing is that if you feel like you don't have the time and space to do that, those things, because I think that sometimes is a challenge. I think we know that relationships are important and spending time outside of work is important. But when we have a demanding career, we just don't find the time. And different industries are being a little bit more flexible now. So if you do need to go on a reduced schedule for a certain amount of time, talk to people. I think that you should talk to leadership at your particular company if that's something you feel like you need to kind of get back into that balance and that rhythm. I've, I'm on a reduced schedule and it really helped me take the time that I needed. So I don't think that, you know, how we talked about this earlier, just the the grind and that that yeah. was a badge of honor. I think you can still advance in your career and take a bit more time for yourself and your well-being. It's a new day, it's 2022. And if we work collectively, we can create a healthier and happier society while also being successful in our careers. Yeah, you're right. And it's a very good point you're making here. More is not better, better is better. You don't have to work harder to be the best lawyer consultant, you have to work smarter. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was, many years ago, when I was an associate and an engagement manager, 
when consultants prepare slides for the final presentation, even though they don't say it, there's a feeling that the more slides and the more complex they are, you're a more successful consultant. So if you're wrapping up a project, you're gonna do a hundred slides and show it to a client. And I had a rule, when I'm presenting to a client, no matter how big the study is, I'm gonna present my recommendation in 10 slides, just 10 slides. Yeah. I need to figure out a way to say it in 10 slides. But I don't think my career suffered because of that, obviously not. But <laughs> people need to get comfortable knowing that sometimes when we are under stress and we don't know what to do, we just do more of what we know. And when you're under stress, you need to rethink this business model saying, okay, I'm under stress. Why am I working so many hours? I mean, am I materially progressing? Am I happier? Is my work better? Are clients happier? Is my team happier? Am I solving the problems with more hours? And sometimes actually by working less hours, you have a clearer mind. That's what I've seen. If you get proper sleep, you can do better work, right? Oh, a hundred percent. I always sleep now. And you always I, sleep now, I, as I, opposed I to the phase of your life when you were not sleeping. Yeah, basically, sadly. But I even did that to my 23 and me, and it said, you are a person who needs eight hours of sleep. Eight hours <laughs> of sleep. They've given you an exact That's my optimal. <laughs> and it really does work. Oh, my gosh. I Even people at my firm, they're like, oh, you're always so happy. I'm like, oh, I sleep. Like, <laughs> It's not a joke. I have a habit of getting up at 5 o'clock sometimes. Mm. It's not a good habit, but I get up at 5 a.m., but then I tried sleeping to 9 a.m. And I thought, whoa, this is a whole new life. Yeah. And I'm right. not recommending people tell their bosses you need to sleep till 9 a.m. and can only get to the office at 10.30. What I am saying is that you need to take care of yourself. I think that's a common theme in this entire episode. Absolutely. You have to take care of yourself before you can take care of others. Exactly. It's like putting the oxygen mask on yourself first before anyone else on that airplane. Yes, although I'm showing the pandemonium of a plane crashing, I'll probably forget and put it on. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easier to, to remember that now, but in the, even the pressure drops or something, I'll probably forget that. Thank you so much, Ashley. I really enjoyed that episode. I think our audience is gonna like it as well. Thank you so much, Michael. It was really great chatting with you, asked great questions, and it was a yeah, very thoughtful and insightful discussion. So I appreciate it. Well, we're happy to have you. I'm sure we'll have you on at some point in the future. So I look forward to all the interesting stories you're going to tell me when we next speak. I love that. Thank you. Take care. Ciao. You too. Bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.